Hi, everyone. Welcome to The AHO Way, a podcast presented by the faculty and trainees at the University of Arizona Internal Medicine Residency Program at South Campus. Each episode, we will delve into the evidence-based, patient-centered practice of ambulatory medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Indu Partha, a board-certified general internist with a passion for primary care and medical education. Today, I am very excited to introduce our guest to all of you. Uh, Dr. Katie Goldlist is a staff geriatrician at Mount Auburn Hospital and an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Our South Campus family will remember Dr. Goldlist as a member of the South Campus Internal Medicine Residency Class of 2018. It is so good to talk with you again. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I miss South Campus a lot. Yeah, before we get into our subject matter today in your field of geriatrics, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how do you spend your time both in and out of work? Well, as a geriatrician, I have a lot of roles. I work in outpatient geriatric primary care. I do consultations, outpatient and inpatient. I work on the hospitalist service. I do co-management with psychiatry, and I also go to the nursing home, so lots of different things. And like you, I'm also passionate about medical education. I teach trainees at all different levels. And actually, in September, I'm going to start a med-ed fellowship uh, at Harvard Medical School, which I'm really excited about. Outside of work, um, I'm very into fitness, running, yoga, cooking. And I've been reading uh, this book recently that I'm really into about the Blue Zones. And there's a cookbook that goes with it. Um, Do you know anything about the Blue Zones? No, I'm actually not um, familiar with it. Can you enlighten me about what those are? Sure. Uh, Blue zones, there are five of them in the world. And these are the places that supposedly have the oldest and healthiest people there. They have the most centenarians, which are people that live to be over 100 years old. And um, usually people ask, what are, where are these places? The five blue zones are in Okinawa in Japan, in Ikaria, Greece, in Sardinia, Italy, in Nicoya, Costa Rica, and one in the U.S. in Loma Linda, California. That is amazing. Um, have to be honest, I'm not entirely positive I want to live past 100, uh, but how about you? Maybe as a geriatrician, you have a different view on this. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, being 100 means so many different things to different people, and really it's less about the age and more about a few things, your attitude, level of function, support. And I would say most people, probably like yourself, really value quality over quantity. I I would agree. Um, And I know you're going to be educating us a little bit more about the care of older adults, um, an area that I would have to say many of us are really lacking any formal education in. Um, Why do you think the topic um, is important? The topic's important because most, if not all, internal medicine doctors will care for older adults at some point. So this topic should really apply to everyone listening. I do feel the lack of formal education in geriatric care is a pitfall in our medical education, but I'm happy that I can have the opportunity to teach people about it. And similarly, like you learn in med school that pediatrics aren't just little adults, I feel that geriatrics um, are very different than adults as well and have a different needs and physiology, which we should know about. I hope today to teach an approachable way to care for geriatric patients, especially in primary care, but I think these tidbits can be used and adapted to other specialties as well. 
for sure with our aging population, I think regardless of uh, what area of medicine someone practices in, they are most certainly going to be involved in the care um, of older adults. Um, so before we kind of dive more into your approach with your older adult patients, um, obviously COVID-19 is uh, on everybody's mind. Um, can you tell us as a geriatrician how you think the pandemic has affected older adults in particular? Yes. With regard to the past six months with the pandemic and COVID-19, we've all had to adjust greatly, but the geriatric population has been greatly, especially affected. Even before the pandemic, we knew that loneliness was an issue that kills older adults. In 2018, a meta-analysis showed that loneliness is a risk factor for all-cause mortality in both older men and women. And this risk factor of loneliness is actually comparable to that of smoking. Loneliness is not just being isolated, which COVID precipitates, but also just feeling unwanted, uncared for, and unloved. So in COVID times, reaching out to those that need support and can avoid loneliness is so much more important. And in this time, I've really had the help of social work to help reach out to older adults in the community, and that has helped a lot, um, but obviously we need more resources. Aside from loneliness, ageism is also a problem that has been accentuated in the COVID era. 80% of US deaths are in people over 65, and especially those over 80 with comorbidities. And it's known that older adults are at higher risk of critical illness and death um, because of COVID. We've known this since January, but the CDC didn't even make a page directed at older adults until mid-March. And this is an example of not thinking about older adults um, as much as we need to and giving them the support that they need. Additionally, we've seen that systems are just not in place for older adults, like for getting food and supplies, like grocery stores. It was much harder for older adults to get to grocery stores and it took a while for systems to be in place to get older adults. I, I think you make really great points, um, especially the one about loneliness really speaks to me. And I think I've, I feel very fortunate that, um, my grandparents before their deaths lived with us and um, we did the best we could taking care of them. And I was very thankful that they were not living alone um, and uncared for. I do realize different families have different situations, but I think as you bring up, there is a systemic um, ageist mentality that exists um, oftentimes that we do need to combat. So I'm glad there are doctors like you out there being advocates for your patients. So thank you. Let's dive in and let's meet our first patient of the day, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, so we are going to meet uh, Mrs. Grace in age, who is an 85-year-old female with a past medical history of atrial fibrillation, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, osteoarthritis of the hips, and a distant history of remote breast cancer. She is brought in by her daughter, Carrie Giver, for concerns of forgetfulness. Um, Mrs. Inage lives alone. She uses a four-wheel walker to get around and has unfortunately had two falls in the past year. Um, Carrie is also concerned that her mother isn't taking her medications properly. Um, I think this is a very realistic case, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how you would get started, Dr. Goldlist, with this patient. Yeah, this is a really typical case. I agree. Um, and I just want to point out that a reason I went into geriatrics, like most primary care providers, is to be able to care for the patient holistically. But like uh, Mrs. Grayson age, focusing 
on her complex medical history, uh, the numerous comorbidities she has in one visit can just be unproductive. And there are also other things we need to think about, not just her medical history, but her um, social well-being and environmental well-being. So in geriatrics, a lot of what we do is look at the big picture and focus on what is important to the patient and trying, instead of trying to fix everything. Especially with time constraints of primary care as well, it's hard to fix everything, so we need to focus. So as a res response to complexity and, and um, primary care physicians not really knowing how to approach older adults, uh, Tanetti, Huang, and Moeller created a structure to approach geriatric patient. And these are known as, the structure's known as the five M's. And these five M's can help keep ideas organized and prioritized. And I've used this technique in telemedicine as well. So the five M's are mind, mobility, multi-complexity, medications, and what matters most. Have you heard of this mnemonic before? I actually have not, but I think I'm going to um, put it to memory because I love mnemonics that can help patient care. Um, and I think this is a very helpful approach to many of our patients where we are a little bit overwhelmed and we start um, losing sight of the big picture. So that's really a good point that you brought up. And I think this um, approach can help us sort of take the, the long view rather than just get caught up on all the little problems. So with Mrs. NH, Carrie, uh, her daughter, is worried that mom is becoming forgetful. A big question I have is how do you get started with this visit? Do you take the history from the patient who may not really have the um, cognition to give you one? Do you take it from her daughter? Um, how do you manage the family dynamics? Um, personally, this is always kind of a tough one for me to um, figure out when I'm seeing a patient in this situation? This is a great question. Um, it's really important to remember that the patient's dignity comes first. So I always make sure to start off talking to the patient and including them in the interview. You're there for the patient and should make them feel like that's the case and that they have input in the conversation. And then um, once I talk to them, if I see that perhaps they do need help or that the family member does want to be involved, I will ask for their permission to have that family member be involved in the conversation. Got it. So can you kind of get us started with the five M's? It sounds like you use that as a framework to ask your questions and uh, direct the appointment. So I think you kind of mentioned the first M as mind. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Absolutely. So for Miss NH, let's go through her five M's. And the first one, as you pointed out, is mind. So that's looking at somebody's cognition and really asking them what their baseline cognition is. So that's, you know, asking them, have they have any concerns with their memories? Have they noticed any changes? And then if they have said that they've had changes, then addressing with cognitive screening, that's appropriate for your clinic with either a mini cog or if you have more time, a mocha. So mind isn't, isn't just this though. Mind is also related to hearing and vision because we really know there's evidence that hearing is direct, directly related to memory. And if you have memory problems and you have hearing problems, the memory problems can improve if you fix the hearing. So in every appointment, especially with patients that have memory problems, I'll make sure to check their ears. 
Another really important part of the first M mind is screening for depression. Because like hearing, depression can also worsen dementia or memory problems in general. This is called pseudo-dementia. And it also can be reversible or lessened if you fix the depression. So in clinic, I will screen for depression using the PHQ-2. And if they're positive for that, then I will go on to use a PHQ-9 or the geriatric depression scale, which is known to have better um, sensitivity in geriatric patients. Great. That um, is a great start. So a lot of good information to um, start packing away. And um, I'm glad to know that we are doing some of this in our clinics, uh, but it's really a great reminder to make it uh, very consistent. Um, so I remember the next M you mentioned was mobility. So how are you going to help Mrs. NH who lives alone, uses a walker, and has um, already suffered from falls? Yeah, so her, she's had two falls in the past year, which is quite a lot. I will make sure to ask my patients if they've had any falls within the last year or six months. Um, and it's really important to ask because falls are a major contributor to morbidity and mortality in older adults. And a lot of times we'll see um, busy clinicians or clinicians that are not familiar with working up falls, just labeling falls as mechanical. But in reality, when an older adult has a fall, it's always multifactorial. And um, that's something we need to investigate and can really help us understand an older adult is figuring out what's causing the falls. So screening tools for falls is asking, like I said, asking them if they've had any falls in the past year, but also if they have a fear of falling is also very telling. Interesting. And the things we need to, the, the things we need to do to work up a fall are both intrinsic and extrinsic. There are also factors that are already present, like chronic um, environment or chronic pain, sorry, or like the environment that they're in, but also new insults like an arrhythmia or hypovolemia, something that happened that's more medical. Um, and then some of my colleagues will use gait as the sixth vital sign. So they'll take their blood pressure, the temperature, and then they'll ask the uh, patient to walk uh, a certain amount and time the meters per second, because we know that older adults that have a gait speed of over 0.8 meters per second have a, a normal gait speed, which is very telling about their functional status. Um, you can also do a timed up and go test, which is asking them to walk 12 feet away. And if it's equal to or greater than 12 seconds, that's normal. And the reason we care about these things is because it can really help us understand a person's function, which in geriatrics is so important about how, uh, how people function because it tells them about quality of life too. And that goes into ADLs and IADLs. Um, are you familiar with ADLs and IADLs? I, I have, but I would love for you to explain a little bit to our listeners um, what you mean by that and, and what kind of questions they should be asking uh, their patients. So briefly, ADLs are activity of activities of daily living and IADLs are instrumental activities of daily living. And the ADLs are more basic uh, function like toileting, uh, dressing, ambulation, feeding, and more. And then IADLs are more higher level of function like uh, cooking or shopping or paying your bills or even taking your medications. So that's a lot of questions. So the, I think the best way to approach ADLs, IADLs, and function is simply asking the patient, tell me about an average day for you. 
starting with when you wake up in the morning. And from that, you can usually gather how dependent or independent they are in their ADLs and IADLs, and if they're needing assistance with those. Perfect. Um, you know, I'm realizing, I think the medical students, when they're starting out in their doctor-patient relationships, are taught to ask that question. Tell me what an average day looks like for you. And somewhere along the way, we honestly stop asking. So again, a great reminder always to remember that um, our patients have some context to them, and it's important for us to uh, figure out what that is. What what are they able to do? What would they like to be able to do? So thank you for reminding us of that. Um, and you definitely weren't kidding when you said older adults could be multi-complex. Um, and I know you mentioned you tend to look at the big picture. Um, so how do you just kind of generally approach managing a complex older adult visit? Um, and what if Carrie, the daughter, starts to take over the appointment, speaking up for mom, answering all of your questions? Um, how do you balance listening to a worried daughter's concerns while also trying to be an advocate for your patient, who is Grace, the mother? Great questions. So let me first start by discussing the third M, multi-complexity. And multi-complexity, like you mentioned, is, is really the medical part of the patient um, addressing the active issues and you know making sure that each medication has a reason for its use. You can also document that here. Um, so usually I'll turn on my internal medicine hat and make sure I'm addressing you know, medical needs. That's very important. You're their doctor. You have to address those. Um, and Multi-complexity, like the other M's, also takes into account other factors. And so one of these factors is a caretaker burden and also just understanding the caretaker. So going back to your question about if Carrie starts to take over the appointment and how do you balance this, it is difficult and sometimes you just need to listen if you have the time. Um, but other times, some techniques you can do is, you know, think carry for her contributions, but then just redirect the, the interview and say, now, uh, Mrs. Inage, um, will you tell me more about this? And really looking at the patient and asking them a direct question. Another technique is um, you can ask, you can, you can tell the patient and their family member that for each appointment, you like to speak to the patient in, in privacy, and that's just a standard um, part of your visit and ask the family member to step out. Um, what I like to do is whenever I'm doing cognitive screening, um, I don't want to have the family members there because they can sometimes unintentionally influence uh, the patient and, their, and cause anxiety during testing. So I'll ask the family members to step out and after or before the cognitive uh, test is administered, I'll ask the patient if they have anything they want to say to me in, in privacy. And this is a good time also to ask about a very important and um, overlooked question in, in uh, geriatrics is elder abuse. So I will ask when the patient's alone if they feel safe at home. Going back to caretaker burden, um, it's important to mention this as well in multi-complexity because a lot of patients require a lot of support and oftentimes that support is their family members and unpaid caregivers. And it's actually known uh, from a study in JAMA in 2014 by um, Edelman et al. that caregivers are at higher risk of depression and death even. So it's important to address caregiver burden during this time and making sure that you're giving um, resources to people like Carrie, Miss Inage's daughter, 
so that they feel um, looked looked after as well. That's a really um, important point. I think any of us who have taken care of a, a patient with cognitive decline or just um, a lot of uh, physical comorbidities with age, um, usually we very much also develop a relationship with families and caregivers. Um, so it is. It, it does become a little difficult to separate separate the two. Um, so those are great uh, techniques that I think um, you've brought up, some of them similar to when we have younger patients who have overbearing parents, for instance. So um, thank you for those recommendations. Um, so moving on to, uh, you know, the next M, which was medication reconciliation or medications, um, I have personally seen the complications that can arise from what I might term medication confusion, um, either confusion on the part of the physician or provider or confusion on the um, end of the patient or their caregiver. So what's your approach here? What are concerns you have um, and how do you address these situations? Yes, you're absolutely right. The fourth M medications is a super important one, even though they're all important. <laughs> and Really doing a proper medication reconciliation at each visit is crucial. Um, I'll often ask patients to bring in their medications each visit, even if that's a little bit burdensome to them, because it really helps make sure that we're on the same page and that I'm doing my job as best I can. And then knowing the actual regimen of the medications for the patient is so important. Um, because each time they take a pill and the dose and the frequency is an additional thing that they need to do in the day and can really impact their quality of life. So I not only ask about their medications, what they are, but who administers them, if there's any problems with costs, and if there's any changes, and if there are changes, if there's any side effects, because you really need to balance the benefits of the drug with, versus the side effects. And then really important in geriatrics is just understanding that as we age, our physiology ages, and therefore medications totally change in older adults. And you may have heard of the Beers list, and that's a list you can consult that discusses, um, is pretty all-encompassing of meds that are harmful to older adults or should be avoided or you should look for alternatives um, in older adults because of their known physiology. Whenever I prescribe a medication to my patients, I always try to discontinue another one to try to lessen pill burden. And I think that's a really great strategy to use because often primary care doctors are the ones to deprescribe and specialists oftentimes will not deprescribe. So it's up to us to be on the forefront of that. There's also, um, there's also something called medication cascades, which is prescribing one medication to help relieve the side effect of another. And that should really be avoided in older adults because it does add to polypharmacy and, uh, and side effects. So very important to acknowledge that as well. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think you are, um, as you're talking, I can just actually picture certain patients I've taken care of in my mind where the medication cascade has been an issue, um, trying to... Um, de-prescribe for patients some of the complications. And I think we'll probably need to have you back to um, help us <laughs> go through how to get patients off of medication. But doctor, I've been taking it for 50 <laughs> years now without right. a problem. Right. Um, 
but the, you know, prescribe one, take one away is probably a, a, a good way, just like clothes in the closet. If you buy something, you need to give one up. Exactly. And that's <laughs> difficult too. So it <laughs> really, uh, but great points. Um, and I have to say your last M um, intrigued me. So can you tell us, Dr. Goldless, what actually matters most? Yeah. So this is a very important M as well. Um, what matters most. And this really is, like I said, the big picture, but also planning for the future and making it about patient-centered care and shared decision-making in your clinic conversation. So back when I was training in Arizona, we were definitely taught this and talked about discussing code statuses and updating in the, the chart, you know, who is DNR, who is DNI, who is full code. But in Massachusetts, we actually have a formal form that each uh, provider is supposed to fill out with their patients. And I'm wondering if something like that is in Arizona now. We call it a MOLST, Massachusetts Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, are you familiar with any form like that? I have heard of it only because um, Dr. Bree Johnston, who I don't know if she came after yes. you. No, no, I, I worked with her. She's okay. amazing. And so yes. she's really done a lot to help with exactly this issue of getting right. away from a code status conversation to talking more about goals of care. Um, so I, I don't think we have a most. Um, yeah order, but we do have prepare for your care, Absolutely. Uh, which Dr. Johnston has been instrumental in getting introduced into our clinics. So resources like prepare for your care and also um, a resource called the serious illness conversation are both actually, I think, more important than just discussing a code status. Like you said, they get people involved and, and, and um, stimulate dialogue about difficult topics in a, an approachable way. But um, forms like the MOLST or they're in California and, and I believe Oregon, it's called the POLST, are formal forms that you fill out with a provider about in an emergency situation if you'd want to be resuscitated or not. Um, and they, they are really um, important for everybody over the age of 65, especially over the 80, to just have that conversation with their provider um, if they feel comfortable. Everybody is different, but it's just good for a provider to bring it up so that the patient knows that somebody's looking out for them and asking them difficult questions that they wouldn't otherwise think about. I think it's very um, underutilized. I definitely agree. I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, having something that's a bit more accessible, we used to have these very um, cumbersome um, advanced care directives that you'll probably remember from the state of Arizona that were literally like 10 pages long, um, and really we're not very patient-centered. Um, so I will definitely look into the MOLST and the, and the POLST I think I have been, maybe been more familiar with um, as resources. And then the Prepare for Your Care, uh, as I was mentioning, has been wonderful and love the fact that we can get it in Spanish as well for some of our, our patients. Yeah, that's um, great. And thank you so very much. Man, I have learned um, a lot. I think the points that you have brought up are going to be very helpful for um, all of our listeners. Um, and I really thank you for that. Um, I'm just wondering, could you leave us with what you think are some bullet point takeaways that you would really like our listeners to remember? Absolutely. So the first point I'd like to make is to, for our listeners to understand ageism 
um, because it exists and it's uh, in our culture and it's up to us to try to change that culture of ageism. And I just want to quote this geriatric expert, um, Louise Aronson, who says that ageism is the only ism that is a prejudice against our future self. And so as with patient um, Mrs. Grace in age, as her name implies, we want to, we want to grace, we want to age gracefully. And in order to do that, we have to have an environment that's kind and accepting of aging. So please, listeners, just be mindful of how you see older adults and, and how you care for them. Another take-home point would be the five M's approach, mind, mobility, multi-complexity, medication, and what matters most. And if you want to review that again, uh, my, one of my mentors, Andrea Schwartz, with her, some of her colleagues created a geriatrics 5Ms pocket card that you can Google and, and download yourself. And uh, just to review simply under each category, mind was about dementia and depression, mobility was with regard to function and falls, multi-complexity was about the medical problems, surroundings, caregivers, and medications was about polypharmacy, deprescribing, and avoiding medication cas cascades. And what matters most is about talking about difficult end-of-life pre preferences now to make situations less difficult and more dignified later. Perfect. I really um, appreciate your uh, first quote that you had referenced um, with Louise Aronson, and I know um, she has written a book called Elderhood that you had listed um, as a resource. Any other uh, resources that you would um, direct our listeners to? Yeah, absolutely. Another podcast that Louise Aronson has been on, I think, multiple times is called Jerry Pal, and there's some great uh, advice on geriatrics and approaching geriatrics and different topics relating to geriatric care in that podcast. And it's really fun to listen to as well, like your podcast. Perfect. Um, I think we've really learned a lot. And I know you had referenced when you um, began speaking about the geriatrics 5Ms, um, Mary Tanetti, Alan Huang, and Frank Molnar as the authors of that. And that is available in the um, Journal of the American Geriatric Society. Um, published in September 2017 for any of our listeners who want to go to the, the source. Um, Katie, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we would love to have you back. I don't think um, we can do justice to the entire specialty of geriatrics just in uh, one short podcast. So we would love to have you back and at least virtually have you back here with us in Tucson. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back. What an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. And, and best of luck on your fellowship, um, your second one. That sounds super exciting. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining uh, Dr. Goldlist and me today. We are very grateful for your support. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review so that others can find us. We'd love it if you would share our podcast with a friend and colleague. We can be found on Anchor, Spotify, and Alpha Podcasts. And we look forward to you joining us next time here on the Ajo Way, where primary care is primary. Podcast episode was produced by Ajay Parker. Uh, opinions expressed on this.